You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. This episode... Really what matters is that voters trust the system. We need them to trust the system despite the fact that it's going to have vulnerabilities. Robbie Mook, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, on lessons from the 2016 campaign, the Defending Digital Democracy Project, and Dark Chocolate. For more insightful conversations with experts from the Belfer Center and beyond, subscribe to Office Hours on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Here's host, Arup Mukherjee. I've read that you really like dark chocolate. <laughs> and not like normal dark chocolate. I mean like dark, dark really chocolate. Really dark chocolate, uh, yes. What's the story there? You know, I, <laughs> it's kind of like my campaign addiction, you know? I guess like you could use opioids or something else. But and you go for, for the... me, it's the really dark chocolate. <laughs> yeah, like the 90, 95. Whoa. I even had like the 99% during the campaign. It's very bitter. Yeah. You have to like take little pieces of it and just kind of enjoy it. But yeah. Do, do, you, do you, so I found that when I, and I confess I'm, I've only, I feel, I feels JV now. I, I've only gone as high as 91. <laughs> oh yeah. And, no, uh. Yeah, it's, it's is that just play. too sugar? Yeah, <laughs> and it, I eat it differently. I can't chew it quickly. I gotta just let it sit in my oh, mouth. Do you? Yeah, the, yeah. I like to savor it. If you get to the ninety nine, you gotta, like, <laughs> you have to savor that. It's incredibly bitter, but yeah. it's like a good coffee in that regard. Ah. Um, Nancy Pelosi was here yesterday, and she is also a big chocolate person. Like she always has. But I even I remember uh, she used to like the seventy five percent, and yeah. I would when I was at the. Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and I used to kind of judge a little. Like I, I was like, I expect more. <laughs> Do you, know? you respect She's somebody like, if they if they match your percentage? Is that yeah? I mean, in the chocolate realm, like yeah. Nancy Pelosi <laughs> is a, an historically incredibly important figure, and is probably the most masterful legislator we've had since Lyndon Johnson. So yeah. you know, like there's that. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to chocolate, I yeah. you know. Yeah, I'm a little bit judgy. I won't lie. <laughs> That's great. Um, all right, so you're you're a you're a, a, a been spent your 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 career in in political organizing and campaigns. Um, and uh, what what was like? What was that like growing up? You know, were you the kid in fourth grade who you know was getting signatures <laughs> for uh, you know an extra bathroom pass or more library <laughs> copies of the Guinness Book World Records? Um. I honestly can't tell you why I got involved in politics. I definitely, unfortunately, I think it was the kid who was a real pain in the ass for my teachers and kind of causing trouble in the back of the room and just yapping all the time. And I think just generally being um, a pain in the butt eventually translated into having strong political views and arguing about those things and all maybe, that. Um, maybe you didn't have shame, you know, asking people to, to sign up for stuff. And, uh, yeah, no, that's true. And, um, you know, I, I, I did start, the first thing I started doing in politics was getting petition signatures. But before that, I remember selling, this is so weird in retrospect, selling light bulbs at the town dump because everybody had to go to the dump selling light bulbs for the boy scouts like that's how we've raised money which is just weird in <laughs> retrospect i one year was popcorn but otherwise it was light bulbs popcorn at the town dump does feel a little <laughs> there's like a certain there's an irony there a poetic irony yeah, yeah indeed <laughs> um so to all those kids out there who are who are listening to the show you know if you're the class clown there are there's a bright future ahead <laughs> there's a very bright yeah light bulbs um what what kind of person does it take to be, you know, campaigns are campaigns are so intense. They involve so much ramen, and and pizza, and 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 it's like jumping from one intense situation to another. 
did you thrive in that environment and and what kind of person does it take to 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 go through all that hmm, that's an interesting question i do thrive when i'm busier um and i, do, I don't know why that is um i i like moving quickly you know for better and for worse and I think campaigns lend themselves to being decisive, making decisions quickly, moving. Um, I like building things and I find uh, successful campaigns adapt by you know being comfortable, just remaking and rebuilding all the time. Um, I think what you have to learn over time is to check yourself and not um, not react to everything. Um, so, you know, some, some campaigns fail because they don't see what's happening and they don't adapt. Other campaigns, um, fail because they're just adapting all the time and they, they never, you know, whether it's, you don't drive a consistent message or you don't build a coherent strategy that actually accomplishes anything. Yeah, by, by adapting, do you mean responding to poll numbers daily or are you talking about technologically or reaching yeah. voters? Yeah. Um, you know, usually it's responding to events. So things can just change yeah. on a campaign. You know, I remember when I, I ran Hillary's primary campaign in Nevada in 2008. And, uh, one of our, uh, it's, it's really coincidental. One of our precinct leaders was in a conversation at a democratic party meeting with a friend of theirs who was Obama's precinct leader. And that person happened to mention uh, how many supporters they were planning to turn out. And the precinct leader came back to us, thank God, and said, hey, this this number they're talking about, that would defeat us because my you, the number you gave me is lower than that. And we actually had to literally redo all of our right. goals. And thank God we did because otherwise I think we would have lost. Squeaked out a victory yeah. there. I remember it was contentious yeah. whether or not she would even stay in Nevada. Yeah, there were sort of questions. I mean, I, th yeah, there were definitely questions. I remember there was a, f a specific phone call we had to have with her and her husband making the case why we thought we could win and what it would take to win. Um, but, but it's also, as I said, not responding. Like you mentioned polling numbers. I think one of the problems we had in 2016 was our race was incredibly volatile and I think we'd become very accustomed, particularly through the Obama campaign to a pretty steady race. And I found personally, one of the most challenging things was like, when do you trust, like what's noise, you know, signal versus noise. Right. And, um, it's so easy as a campaign to like freak out and completely change everything. And on a presidential, those sorts of big changes, particularly when you're at a national level, they're, they're very disruptive and retooling from, you know, your office in New York down to, you know, your literally thousands of field offices around the country. That's that's hard. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to be incredibly deliberate organizationally, operationally when you want to disrupt things in that way. And can you can you pivot 4,500 staff into a, new, <laughs> into a new place? That's really hard. Yeah, and I assume that these are the sorts of things that are brought on by, um, you know, once you find out who the who the opposing candidate is, uh, the, com you know, the, the, the Comey announcement, for instance. Right. And, and these are the sorts of kind of earth-shifting uh, right. events that you are forced to, to grapple with. Um, 
Did you, was that something in 2016 that you, you, I mean, how did you balance that? Well, Comey was the hardest because it was just so late. There was like very little we can do, you know, and I think, um, I've been spending some time trying to distill what I think are the important lessons from 2016 because we did make a lot of mistakes, but I think unfortunately a lot of the, the kind of popular writing or popular wisdom out there does it learns the wrong lessons. What do you mean? Well, so for example, people say, Oh, well she just should have gone to Wisconsin. Right. And the fact of the matter is, um, even if we'd want, so let's, let's say there's a correlation between showing up in Wisconsin and winning Wisconsin. Well, even if she'd shown up and then won, we still wouldn't have, we still wouldn't have won. Uh, we wouldn't have had the electoral votes. And I think the more important state to examine is Pennsylvania, where we spent more money per capita than anywhere else. We had our convention and we actually had the biggest rally of the entire campaign, bigger than anything Sanders had ever had, bigger than anything Trump had ever had. We had 35,000 people in Philadelphia the night before the election. Mm -hmm. And she'd spent an enormous amount of time in Pennsylvania. So there, I, I think there's often this like correla correlation causation issue. You know, we're at the Kennedy School. That's right. a big thing people discuss a lot. Um, there, I would venture to argue, it's hard for me to say this in a lot of places, but I think actually engaging in the race more in Wisconsin could have led to a, a worse result even. And I don't say that to say, oh, well, every decision we made was right. No, mm -hmm. clearly like there was a softness in Wisconsin yeah. that, you know, I could say firsthand we weren't addressing properly. But to simply say, well, you know, it, it's just as simple as showing up. Um, that misses the point. Another big one that, you know, so funny people, people say like, well, gosh, you know, she spent time in Arizona. And I always say, actually, the criticism you should be giving us is spending time in Iowa or Ohio. We lost, we lost Arizona by like four points. You know, we lost Ohio by 10, more than 10. And, um, so it's those sorts of things where yeah. people just like to point to stuff. So look, it's on me to try to help like guide. And you know, now we're kind of out of the crazy period. Yeah, is it afterwards. less emotional for you? I mean, it's two years almost to the day. Yeah, it's most, it's less emotional for everybody and people are going to start running for president. So it's important. I think that we surface like the really important things to learn and kind of get beyond some of the, you know, like the more convenient narratives and that sort of thing. Is this sort of musings that you're just you know, you're just, you're just having, or are you planning on a book here or a piece or what's, um, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out the right thing. I've been doing a little bit of writing. Um, I have written some op-eds, uh, yeah. I'm certainly talking to people, you know, and people who are helping people run for president or planning to run for president. Um, and so far, what are you, what were, what were the, some of those, some of those things, some of those lessons, some of the big lessons. Yeah. Well, I think one the, one of the most important ones is, is what I just brought up, which is, um, we became very reliant on data over the last few years. And again, the oversimplified lesson is we'll stop using data. And that's crazy. Right. Like you can't do that. If you're running a billion dollar budget, you have to have some touchstones to guide what you do. However, the way that we do survey research to gather that data hasn't really changed that much over the last 30 years. It's changing more and more now. Um, but I do think there were some weaknesses in how we do that were exposed. Yeah. And I do think we've just kind of plowed forward and I do think we need to step back and think about how we gather that. Cause we missed some people. This is just polling data. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, there, there's, 
there's a lot of different words that get thrown around. There's polling, yeah. analytics. What all these things do is call up voters and ask them who they're going to vote for and then take that and apply those results to the entire electorate. Yeah, are these things when you like sign up, go to some random website and there's a pop-up and they ask you to ask a question? I mean, where, where, how are these yeah. gathering? And, of course, that looks at it, that, that analyzes a very specific population. Yeah. Um, has the Internet really caught up? to this sort of, these sort of analytics? Well, we, or has the analytics caught, up, caught to up, the up to the internet, to the internet, internet right? Look, <laughs> that's a great question to be asking. I, just as an instinctual matter, I think we have to be so-called multimodal. So I think we need to reach some people on the phone. I think we need to reach some people on the internet. Um, I, we don't know. And yeah. it may be the case that we actually need to go door to door. Like they used to do back, Go like letters you know, and door to door. Do you, I mean, yeah. people, to me, I would, I mean, I'm trying to think. I I would more likely respond to a letter probably than an unlisted phone call, which probably wasn't the case 15 years ago. People had yeah. home phones, so they would pick up the phone. There wasn't caller ID or 20 years ago. Yeah, and look, the the data on that's overwhelming. You know, on with polling, um, it used to have a 25, 30 percent response rate, maybe even higher. I'm sure decades and decades ago. Today, you're getting one, two, three. Res- percent response yeah. rate. I remember back when it was a 7%, you know, so the glory days. Yeah. The good old days, 7%. <laughs> so yeah, that's a huge issue. So that's like a really important lesson. I think one, I think two is volatility. I think our media or, or the ability of a race to move. So perfect example, you know, in October, mid October after this, after the last presidential debate, you know, we were up like 15 points in Wisconsin, Michigan. Yeah. Now we knew that the, that our support there was volatile and could move, and we could have a whole separate podcast mm-hmm. on all the demographic <laughs> reasons that that happens. But these are, you know, these are pretty consistent patterns. Yeah. Um, and okay, so we need to think about that issue. Is you know, if you know that certain states and certain demographic demographic cohorts of voters are uh, soft, so mm-hmm. to speak, what's the strategy there? Um, because on the one hand, you can run a really conservative strategy, which says, I'm just going to play in these certain states mm-hmm. that I know I need to win the Electoral College. Another way is to say, look, we got to spread out a little bit and try to cut the other folks off. Right. Um, and so again, you, and you can't do everything everywhere. Yeah. So like a great question going into the next map, which I don't think we're talking about is like, do you play in Ohio and Iowa or do you instead choose, um, Arizona or Georgia? You know, I'm, I, I Texas is even, you know, that's one that I think we need to keep exploring. It's yeah. so expensive though, to go into Texas. That's really hard. Yeah. So those are the discussions I think we need to be having. Um, and instead I think we get down into a really tactical place about like, Oh, well, television didn't work. So yeah. let's not do television. That, you know, that's yeah. not true. You know, you've also talked a little bit about this thing called the Trump trap or you, what you call the Trump trap. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, the perfect example of a lesson we need to learn. So one of the, it's funny, one of the things I still get sometimes when I'm out talking to folks is they'll say, you know, gosh, Hillary Clinton never talked about the economy. She didn't address, you know, working class people. And the, the fact is she talked about that stuff a ton and they've done word analysis on her speeches and everything that show this. She, that's, that's what she talked about more than anything. But in fairness, people didn't hear it. And I think one of the mistakes that we made as a campaign was we didn't realize when we thought Trump was hanging himself, when we thought he was doing damage to himself, what he was in fact doing was 
sucking up all the oxygen so voters never got a chance to hear about why Hillary wanted to be president. I think we lost the election because voters didn't think Hillary was on their side. Mm -hmm. And so the example of this of the, the my, my my primary example of the Trump trap is after the convention, usually you get this big bounce and you're out there and you can really drive your message. Yeah. And Hillary did a tour in, you know, drumroll, Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio <laughs> talking about drumroll manufacturing and job creation, right? right. Like that's the, the right. <laughs> you know, but nobody, nobody remembers that tour. Nobody. Um, what they remember was the fight that was happening with the Khan family right. and the Gold Star parents and the horrible things that Donald Trump said. And again, our principle was, which is very typical on campaigns, when your opponent is hanging themselves, let them do it. And, and in retrospect, I think that was absolutely a mistake because everybody knew Donald Trump was racist. Everybody knew Donald Trump was a bigot and, and a mean, nasty person. Um, they didn't understand what Hillary was going to do for that. How do you, how do you not react there. to those things? I mean, because, because the counter argument is that if you don't react, it either normalizes or you also you also risk not getting your. I mean, those are things that your the base gets energized about. Yeah, and it can mobilize uh, a big population. It's a great question, uh, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I, I don't have all the answers. Yeah, but I th let, let's step back and just look at what's happened. Right after all the denunciations, after all of the pushback. Donald Trump has not changed his behavior. He is just as racist, just as bigoted, just as self-obsessed. Right. And it is a, it is a strategy. And what, again, it's very easy to say, oh, Hillary is a flawed candidate. Forget about it. I, I really think the bigger problem was we didn't know how to manage this Trump trap. Um, the other, the other just quick example of this that I think is really important is, um, we had a speaker at the convention, a woman who had, her husband had, had died in Iraq. She used the death benefit she received from the department of defense to pay for Trump university. She wanted to have a big successful real estate career and it was a fraud. I mean, she gave all this money over to Trump university. They never called her back. They didn't give her any education. They didn't give her a leg up. Nobody remembers that speech, but we all remember Kieser Khan. And that's not, I want to honor Kieser Khan. His speech was incredible. But again, we were fundamentally on Trump's message, yeah. not on our own. Yeah. And the, and I really worry coming out of the Democratic primary next year, or rather in 2020, our candidate is going to come out to find on the things Trump wanted to talk about, not on our own message of how we're going to make people's lives better. Um, do you think Trump has, I mean, every incumbent has an inbuilt advantage. Incumbency is always an advantage uh, or more often than not uh, an yeah. advantage for, for candidates. Yeah. Um, but do you feel that he's also changing the way campaigns in some way are run because he's, all these rallies are fairly new for a president to be doing them in such a bold kind of over, you know, rally the base kind of way. Um, in the same way, it sort of harkens back to this, you know, to the changes that were made. Campaigns used to be, for instance, just uh, at the candidate's house yeah. or where they lived. Um, I studied the 1890s and back then it was a major, you know, the whistle stop tours of the late 1890s and, and, and uh, early 1900s were new. Yeah, they would right. actually go on a train and, and right. meet the voters, which was, that was crazy. Well, incumbents weren't even supposed to campaign. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> of course, yeah. absolutely. It's yeah. considered uh, not ungentlemanly. Yes, yes. Um, Trump seems to be doing that with rallying the base. Uh, midterms right. are usually a way to punish a candidate. But when the base is rallied every month or every six weeks through these rallies, is that changing 
uh, how can you know something in the campaign playbook? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, if if a if an incumbent president had a forty percent job approval, typically they'd either be a little bit more scarce or a little bit more targeted. There is an asymmetry this year between the House and the Senate where the president's actually relatively popular in, uh, again, when I underscore relative, relatively popular in the red states where the Senate battleground is. So there actually is utility in getting him out there. And the Republican strategy to win in those states is to polarize, to basically remind Republicans that they're Republicans and get them to go home. And, And the president is probably the most effective messenger to do that. So I think there is real strategic value. Um, I do think, you know, uh, an advantage the incumbent president used to have, I think, would be twofold. One, they could raise a ton of money, you know, uh, Clinton re-election, George Bush's re-election. Um, they can operationalize. They can kind of get prepared. Um, but secondly, they can – I think you're in a much better position as an incumbent to define your opponent, Right. And because you, you have can, a bigger microphone. Yeah. You, and you can sort of attack them as they're growing up in the primary mm-hmm. and then coming out of that primary, you can just drop a weight on them and define them with a ton of TV ads. That's what George W. Bush did to John Kerry um, in the 2004 election. I think to some degree today, data is replacing not replacing, but emerging alongside money as a power center. So the amount of data you can accumulate helps you to raise more money. And it also makes your um, communication more targeted, uh, uh, you know, when you decide to campaign. And what I see Trump doing, in addition to the rallies, you know, I'm, I'm less, that to me is less novel, presidents go on campaign. What I, th- what I think he, they are doing is amassing an enormous amount of information on the electorate and building their base so they will have a tremendous financial resource going in that that can be tapped again and again. The days of raising $2,700 checks are over. You got to raise it from the crowd, so to speak. But then also, I assume doing a lot of tooling up on data, which will enable, I think, enable them over the course of our primary to to define our primary candidates to general election voting um, to a general election voters who they need to retain that they, you know, that they won in 2016 and need to retain to win. Very interesting. I mean, on the topic of data, um, since 2017, you've been at the Kennedy school with a project called D3P defending digital democracy. Um, and it's about the protection. I mean, it's a little, a different, a different conversation about data, but it's about the yeah. protection of data. Um, of course brought on, and this was in, 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 coordination with um the co-director of the belfer center uh, eric rosenbach yep. as well as uh, matt rhodes who's who is the campaign manager of uh, mitt romney's uh, 2012 campaign yeah um and it's so w- how has that been going i mean in in are we prepared um as a country with defending digital democracy i mean it, the whole project is 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 around making sure our our electoral system is safe yeah um or and resilient yeah maybe both of those things right um how, how has that project been going for you and what have you found yeah well first of all it's been a great project to do um you know we're doing this in a bipartisan way and i think that's really important and eric rosenbach was kind enough to you know open the belfer center as a home to have the project um i think you just hit on one of the most important points which is it's not just about security, it's about being resilient. 
And so people all the time ask, you know, are we ready? <laughs> is the election going to be secure? And I think the fact of the matter is the election is always going to inherently have vulnerabilities and not be completely secure. Yeah. It's, it's unreasonable to expect that. The question is, can we bounce back from an attack? Yeah. That to me is way more important. But that's, um, that, that's not just, that's not just technically, that's also, that's a level of trust. That's a psychological element. Exactly. And, to, and, and you, you kind of hit on this earlier. We tend to go to the tactical, right? So it's about security. Really what matters is the voters trust the system, right? Yeah. Um, and we need them to trust the system despite the fact that it's going to have vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. An example I like to use on this is banks are getting hacked all the time. They are vulnerable. They have they have some of the probably the best cyber defenses in the world, and and they get hacked. The Iranians, you know, perpetrated an enormous hack on Wall Street. I don't meet anyone on the street today who isn't putting their money in the bank and doesn't trust that that money will be there for them, yeah. right? And I think we need the same with our vote. We need to say, yeah, yeah, I did read that there was a hack of the banks, or I, I read that you know this part of the election system is vulnerable, but you know what? I really have trust that there's backup systems where my vote is there and it's gonna be counted, even if it takes them some work to go back and mm-hmm. get it right, I know that that will happen. So, it's, so as much time as we're spending on on walking people through all the different vulnerabilities in the system, we're also trying to help state election officials learn how to communicate with the public to maintain that trust and to maintain that trust even when something's gone wrong. Yeah. Are you hopeful? Are you an optimist about this? I, I am actually, yeah, because we see, you know, we see people moving to things like statistical audits or um, using paper ballots as backup. Um, and the most important thing I see is cultural, because I think this is about a culture. And the the election officials I talk to, they take this really seriously. They are moving very fast relative to how government typically yeah. moves. And um, I actually think we're going to see, in a way, sort of a renaissance where some of these election officials are really engaging the public a lot more closely to understand everything they're doing. You know, this makes election officials freak out. I'm a supporter of, like, in addition to having statistical audits after every election, I think we should allow people to request recounts whenever they want, mm. right? As you know, if you're willing to pay for it, you should be able to get that recount. You know, maybe we it's limit it to one an or something. Thing. Yeah, but my attitude is, if you can go raise the money to do it, and you know, we shouldn't have like ten recounts; you just have yeah. one. But 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 to me, it's important that that anybody, any citizen can really kick the tires. And so I think we should be looking for ways to actually make all that easier. For example, if you use paper ballots and you use the OptiScan machines, which most states do now, you can just post all the ballots online, right? I mean, there's all these sorts of things we can do. And I I think we should be leaning heavily into transparency because I think that's the best way to kill conspiracy theories. Um, Are you on social media, Facebook, Instagram? I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm terrible at Twitter, though. So yeah, <laughs> Twitter I seems mean, like social media light to me. Um, it is, and you know, and it's it's much more for kind of new, you know, yeah. the media space and all that. Um, I've never been on Facebook, um, Instagram. I'm but just you're not curious about that world, like because that's I mean that's what we're a big part of this <laughs> yeah. is protecting these social media companies. Yeah, from- look, and when I when I did campaigns, I spent a lot of times focused yeah. on those. It's just for me. It's just not. I don't know. I just haven't wanted it. I, th- I yeah. think I see both sides of it. Like when you when you focus on how to speak to people through those channels, yeah. I think you potentially learn appreciate how much is going on behind the scenes. Uh, to so you're familiar, you're intimately influence. familiar with them. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd, I'd like yeah. to think I'm con- you know at least conversant in them. Yeah. Do you ever feel left out? You know, you don't know about a certain thing that has happened, uh, which people sometimes assume. You know, if I post something, maybe not with everyone, but I assume that some of some of my closest folks will have seen it. Um, yeah. I do. And I definitely, you know, when I'm catching up with friends of mine, they'll mention things about other friends that I didn't know, you know, they had a baby, yeah. they so on and so forth. Um, I just find my biggest challenge in life is focusing and trying to do good work every day. Yeah. And I think if I'm trying to manage all that incoming and everything else, it just, it'll make me less productive, <laughs> you know? Um, but on that, on that note, um, one of the, you know, the election, uh, election system is is so large you know it's not just voting machines it's it's also well there's all sorts of other stuff involved in the voting and the electoral system but there's also private companies involved there are yep. you know the the election meddling primarily through was through, primarily through social yep. uh, social media yep. um and and to me the the kind of fundamental tension is you have a private industry that has huge sway over governmental activities yeah yet we have to trust that those private companies are doing enough yeah. to protect their systems without yeah. the help of government, unless they so desire to invite them, which most private companies would be hesitant to do. Yeah. How does that, how do you fix that problem? Yeah. You mean on the election specifically? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, I mean, it could also apply generally speaking really, but yeah, well, one of the things, the election assistance commission, which is a federal agency that was set up through the help America vote act. Um, part of its role is to test systems um, for security and certify them. Now, all of this is voluntary. States don't have to take it, but I think it's, it's something like all but one or two or three states, yeah. you know, use this. I I think the Election Assistance Commission needs to continue that. I think as a country, we need to invest more in standards and thinking about standards. So, you know, I would go to universities around the country and challenge them to help us think about this. So I actually think you can hold the vendors accountable by just having clear standards and then testing them and auditing all of these systems, to their standards. Um, you know, and, and I would also say the more we spend on elections, um, the better quality vendors we're going to have, the more competition there's going to be, you know, the more we're investing in this as a thing. So some of this honestly is like, we kind of get what we pay for yeah. really. And yeah, I don't like that. There's like only one or two of these vendors. I think we should have that diversity. Um, and, and lastly, uh, you've, uh, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but the biggest impetus here was, there was the Russian meddling. I mean, for yourself yeah. with Matt Rose, it was, it was China. Yeah. Um, Mike Pence a couple of weeks ago had mentioned that China was primarily is, is the biggest threat to, to election meddling. Um, and though they've, of course, been responsible for numerous hacks, there has not been evidence, at least that I've seen, um, that there's their election meddling in this election yeah. of 2018. Yeah. But are you afraid that they will do that? I mean, a, yeah, 100%. Look, I worry about North Korea. I worry about Iran. Yeah. I worry about China. I worry about fringe organizations domestically. Yeah. Uh, that's obviously different because I think Americans just have a different right <laughs> to do these things than, than foreign foreign security agencies. Um, I do worry that the president and the vice president are trying to set this up as a foil. Um, the fact is, and part of why Matt and I did this is both parties are going to be affected, but I also think both parties have a responsibility not to use this as a crutch or an excuse. And I was a little concerned because what we have seen China doing 
is public, you know, disclaimed advertising. They've definitely been trying to influence the public debate around Mm -hmm. tariffs. It is entirely possible they will go on social media disguised as Americans Mm -hmm. and try to influence the debate there, too. There hasn't been evidence put out about that. So I just I hope that both sides and, and my side, too, on the Democratic side, that we both talk about this responsibly and that the intelligence community shares enough with the American people so that they can have a rational understanding of what influence operations are taking place and also that the platforms respond and root it out. So hopefully voters aren't having to carry the full burden of, you know, knowing what's foreign influence and what's real. Well, Robbie, uh, thank you so much for being thank here you. and spending the time. It's, this was a lot of fun, although it's, it sounds like we've got some reason for optimism, but still have to be cautious. Thank you so much. Thanks. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 